it is very hard to um, mainstream human rights and humanitarian issues in US foreign policy. Now, the rhetoric of US foreign policy may be all about championing human rights and democracy abroad. But if you look at the practice, um, that becomes the goal of US foreign policy for as long as doing that is not a posing any threats or resulting in any negative consequences for its strategic interests. So whenever I communicate with my Kurdish friends in DC, and we always talk about how to best lobby the US government to keep the Kurdish issue on the US State Department's agenda. Um, my opinion, suggestion has always been, if we approach the situation completely from a humanitarian, which is very important, don't get me wrong, but in order to get foreign policy establishments um, attention, the lobbying effort needs to focus on how this relationship is actually serving the interests and goals of both actors strategically in the long term. Lobbying efforts, as long as you focus on that, then you can gradually open more and more space for your humanitarian work as well. Welcome to the GM Foundation podcast. I'm Joshua Governali, your humble host as we journey through our shared human experience with authors, experts, and human rights advocates. My guest today is Dr. Azum Ziltas. She's a PhD at the University of Texas A&M, and she spent much of her career studying U.S.-Kurdish relationships um, and the happenings of the Middle East. And so today we're going to be doing something we don't normally do. We're going to be taking a look at the geopolitical landscape um, of the Middle East, and particularly surrounding the Kurdish issue and the U.S. role um, and involvement in that part of the world. Jian Foundation is an apolitical humanitarian organization, and as such, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of Jian Foundation. So with that said, let's get started. I'm here with Dr. Ziltas, and her newest book, Rethinking State, Non-State Alliances, Change and Continuity in the U.S.-Kurdish Relationship, is for sale now wherever you get your books. Hi, Dr. Zeltas. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we met a while ago, uh, mm-hmm. a few months ago, um, uh, in DC. And you, uh, I, I learned, uh, when I first met you, I actually just kind of assumed that you were Kurdish because you study Kurdish issues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you're a professor, associate professor at Texas A&M. Yes, right in the political mm-hmm. in the political science department. Um, but why don't you actually, you know, introduce yourself and and tell me a little bit about why you kind of got into U.S. Kurdish relations? Okay, um, when you're ethnically Turkish and studying this issue academically, actually, this kind of like comes up pretty often. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess I would start by first saying this that. Anybody who's concerned about human rights or basic human freedoms, I think should be concerned about 
the Kurdish issue as well as plight of the other communities around the world who are suffering from rights violations and oppression. So that's the general statement I'll probably start with. Um, but as far as my personal story is concerned, I grew up pretty sheltered politically. So my first exposure to the Kurdish issue was actually in college. I went to Middle East Technical University in Ankara and Middle East Technical University has always been very political. I'm not sure how it's doing with the current generation now, but my time was mid 1990s and the conflict in the southeastern part of Turkey was its peak at the time. Um, so the campus was very political, including the Kurdish issue. So that was my very first exposure. Um, now, uh, be sorry, before this, did you not have any exposure to Kurdish people at all? Or was <laughs> would... it something? Yeah. No, not personally. The most I've heard about Kurdish people and the Kurds or Kurdish issue in general as I was growing up was why are a lot of Kurdish people migrating to our city? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people who were like trying to escape from the conflict because um, a lot was going on. Um, and people would complain about that. that. That was the extent of I heard about the Kurds. Um, people were not politically, you know, like too much involved in the Kurdish issue in my part of the country, besides the whole Kurdish migrants in our city issue. Um, so the whole, like the other side of the conflict, um, the actual like rights struggle part of it, I wasn't exposed to that until college, until I actually got to know the Kurdish community itself. Um, I would say it, it, it was my freshman year, and I think it was the first or second week of the classes and we were in a class break. Um, and there were these like group of guys who were always hanging out together every 10 minute break we had from the classes and they were speaking a different language. So mm -hmm. one day I approached and I asked one of them, what language are you speaking? And he turned to me and he said, oh, I'm speaking Kurdish. And this was the first time I heard Kurdish language and I was like, not sure how to proceed with the conversation. It's just like, oh, it's just my native language. And I was kind of personally shocked to hear how unaware I kind of grew up. So during my college years and then after um, my involvement with the Kurdish issue was more along the lines of activism, uh, Kurdish rights activism. I worked with uh, NGOs, um, human rights groups, um, political parties a little bit, um, and then it translates more into an academic interest after I moved to the U.S. and started my PhD. I, I, I was sure from the beginning that I was going to write my dissertation on the Kurdish issue, um, and I was very open about it. I was very outspoken about it, and most of my friends in PhD, uh, some of my professors, and some of the people I knew from the policymaking community in DC told me that if I wrote my dissertation on this issue, I may not be able to find a job because it is very marginal in US foreign policy. And they were like, if you wanna study ethnic conflict in the Middle East, um, probably you should look at something like Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, um, Actually, that like kind of like encouraged me more to write on the Kurds because as you can see, 
the long-term struggle of the curse and how it came such a long way and how it's actually so mainstream in US foreign policy right now, I think that tells us a lot about the importance of this issue in impacting the trajectory of really important issues in the region, like the Syrian conflict, stability of four main countries in the region. I don't think we can talk about stability in either Iran, Iraq, Syria, or Turkey without some kind of accommodation towards Kurds' um, demands. So there's, there's four parts um, mm -hmm. of what are considered Kurdistan. Uh, maybe you would actually like to elaborate on that better than I could. Well, Kurdish people have always been kind of a divided community. Um, before they became minorities in Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, um, they were living partly under the Ottoman Empire and partly under the Persian Empire. But I think what differentiates that part of history from the modern establishment of the nation states was under the Ottoman Empire, the Kurds actually had their autonomous administrations, they were able to practice their culture, they were able to speak their own language. And obviously, as a Sunni Muslim group, um, they were not identified, quote unquote, minorities back then. So only I think after the establishment of modern nation states in the region, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, we can talk about Kurdish nationalism in the politicized sense of the term. So I would say Kurdish nationalism in the political sense of the term, I think emerged as these exclusionary policies um, brought about by Turkish, Persian, and Arab nationalisms that dominated those four countries. In your book, Rethinking State-Non-State -State Alliances, Change and Continuity in the U.S.-Kurdish Relationship, you say that analysts have too often missed half the story, um, saying also that they've focused too much or exclusively on Washington's perspective. Can you elaborate on that? I think more than missing half of the story, I would say they're missing the broad picture. Mm -hmm. And this has been my criticism towards U.S. foreign policy for the longest that the calculations have always been very short term without thinking much about the long term consequences. And I think Kurdish issue and the Kurds historical relationship with the U.S. is a very good example for that. And that's why I named my book Change and Continuity in the Kurdish relationship in the U.S. Kurdish relationship, because the relationship started with the United States calling the Kurds as a communist danger, because back in the early days of the Cold War, uh, the Kurds were actually more in a tactical relationship with the Soviet Union and more like cozy with the leftist organizations more than the Western Bloc. So that actually painted a picture of the Kurds in the eyes of the US that these are communist dangers perpetuating the goals of the Soviet Union in the region. And then we went from that to kind of this covert support process between Iraqi Kurds and the US in the 1970s um, in order to get concessions for Iran from Saddam, Israel, uh, Iran and the United States um, supported the Kurdish movement in, in Iraq. Um, but that relationship pretty much unfolded as a proxy relationship once Iran and Iraq signed the Algiers Agreement, automatically the alliance was dismissed because it was no longer serving the interests of the US. And then we went from there 
to the 1991 Gulf War, that's when the United States and the Kurds finally started to cooperate like openly. And then we went from there to the 2003 US intervention in Iraq, when the relationship finally became official and completely institutionalized in the context of Iraq. I mean, of course, there's a Syria, um, Turkey and Iran part of the story too, but uh, I repeated this in my book many times that Iraqi Kurds and their relationship with the US has and looks like will be the most, will remain to be the most substantial US-Kurdish relationship in the region. So what, what I mean by what I mean by they're missing the broad picture is um, after United States withdrew from Iraq in 2011, for the most part, the rhetoric was KRG and Iraq should solve their problems on their own. You know, it is Iraq's internal problem now. And the KRG and, is the uh, semi-autonomous Kurdistan regional government in Iraq. Yeah. That's the, mm -hmm. the northern part of Iraq that is uh, its own semi-autonomous government. Yes. Um, I mean, technically speaking, U.S. is correct. As an outside actor, U.S. is not responsible for solving the conflict between two actors in another country. But I mean, let's look at the facts. Uh, if you look at the facts, in 1991 with the Gulf War, it was precisely the U.S. action and decision of imposing the no-fly zone in northern Iraq, which led to the establishment of the Kurdistan regional government. The cooperation between the U.S. and the Iraqi opposition against Saddam, which the Kurds had been a very important part of that opposition, continued until 2003, which further strengthened the autonomous government there. And then 2003, U.S. intervention and Kurds got this constitutional status in new Iraq, in the new federal Iraq, as a recognized federal entity. And the whole constitutional process actually unfolded quite pro-Kurd because the Arabs wanted a more like centralized federalism while the Kurds actually wanted a more loose type of confederalism with a very strong autonomous status. And actually the current Iraqi constitution unfolded in a way, the negotiation process unfolded in a way that benefited the Kurds the most. And that process was also completely sponsored by the United States. So when we look at these like series of events, I think there's a lot of moral and political hazard like lurking on Washington's posture on the whole Kurdish issue in Iraq. So I don't think it's like that easy for the US to completely detach itself from the conflicts going on between the KRG and the central Iraqi government. And as these disputes became protracted without a solution, I think we saw the consequences of this time and again. One of the main consequences of this, for example, was the 2017, uh, the Kurdish independence uh, referendum. I think that whole process of referendum, the process that led up to the referendum, and then what happened afterwards was I think a profound US foreign policy failure in Iraq. We saw two, the U.S. allies and the Iraqi Central Forces and the Kurdistan Forces going against each other. And what made matters worse was actually the Iranian-backed Shia militia were also mobilized against the Kurds at the time. 
which at the time Kurds were the closest allies of the U.S. in the fight against ISIS. Yeah, you see the like the series of contradictions in the U.S.'s approach. Um, so when we say they are missing half the picture, I think they are missing the broad picture of how the U.S.-Kurdish alliance is actually a strategic asset for the U.S. in the region and Iraq in particular in the long term. Soon after he took office, President Biden um, made a declaration that ended the combat mission in Iraq for the United States. Uh, and part of that was saying that we will continue to support um, Iraq uh, in this case without any real uh, uh, specifics. And I think this kind of lends to what you know we're talking about right now is to what kind of partnership should that be moving forward with Iraq, with the KRG, and maybe even um, some of the surrounding uh, states and actors? Um, okay. Um, in the particular case of Iraq, I would say United States has not followed a very consistent policy in the way it handled that relationship. At times, United States appeased the Kurds, especially while the fight against, not the fight against Saddam, but the civil war afterwards was going on. Um, at times, United States appeased the Kurds. And at other times, especially while the US was about to get out of Iraq in 2011, they wanted to leave a strong centralized Iraq uh, in place after they get out. So at the time, they strongly supported Nouri al-Maliki which was actually being criticized by Kurds as well as the Sunni Arabs because of its authoritarian policies. So the, the, the relationship of the US to these two actors um, has never been really consistent. Like that has been, in my observation, one problem. So when the whole ISIS issue came up, all of a sudden Kurds became a major strategic asset again in the fight against ISIS. Now that that conflict is cooling down, again, Kurds went to the back burner. So first of all, I think we need a coherent US Kurdish policy in the region. Yeah? And I'm not just talking about a coherent policy towards Iraqi Kurds, Syrian Kurds, Iranian Kurds, Turkish Kurds. I'm talking about a coherent US Kurdish policy, which recognizes that this issue is not a domestic issue anymore. It's, it's a transnational issue. Kurds are transnationally connected more than ever before, especially with Iraqi and Syrian borders becoming so fluid and Kurdish exchanges, especially between those, these two countries, rapidly increasing. We take these all together. What United States first needs to recognize is that your relationship with the Kurds in one part of Kurdistan has direct consequences, not only for the Kurds across borders, but also for US's bilateral relations with the central governments. Yeah? When the United States establishes an alliance with the PYD in Syria, that automatically affects US-Turkey relations and US-Turkey PKK peace process. When United States, um, follows this inconsistent policy in Iraq, it automatically impacts US's relations with both the KRG and the central Iraqi government. And then there is the also Iranian part of the story, which United States wants to curb Iran's influence in the region. I mean, let's look at Iran's regional policy, for example. Iran is an expert on proxies. 
Iran's entire Middle East policy is based on focusing on weak states, power vacuums, and recruiting actors in those contexts, and then using them as proxies to project influence. Now, Iran already is influential because of the sectarian ties it has with the central government. And Iran, I think, is increasingly looking at KRG2 in terms of its proxy policy in the region. Um, obviously, Russia, Iran, they do not want US influence in countries like Syria and Iraq. And who are the main actors that are actually keeping US influence in, the, in those contexts? The Kurds. So that's why Kurds actually are very attractive actors in the eyes of those um, countries. And when Trump administration withdrew its forces in 2019 from Syria, who did the Kurds turn to? They turned to Assad, Iran, and Russia. And they brokered that agreement um, in order to um, have some front against the upcoming Turkish attack. Now, as the United States withdraws, these countries are pulling in to fill that vacuum left by the US. And I think um, both in the context of Iraq and in the context of Syria, I think where the United States has most influence in these two countries, are the Kurdish-held territories and the Kurdish part of these two countries. So that's what I mean when I say the US-Kurdish alliance having um, more like long-term strategic consequences for US foreign policy in the region. Um, and you, you know, Jian Foundation is an apolitical organization. Our focus remains on human rights, ensuring access to, to mental health treatment. Um, and when you, talk about the long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, for us as an organization, that has to include, and that has to really focus on um, the people that, that live in those regions. Um, uh, how, how, can, how can these governments cooperate and how can they involve maybe other actors, maybe civil society actors to, to kind of emphasize humanitarian um, issues and be sure that those things, those those developmental aspects, are being addressed. Okay, I'm I'm gonna give this a very realistic answer. Um, mm -hmm. It is very hard to um, mainstream human rights and humanitarian issues in U.S. foreign policy. Now, the rhetoric of U.S. foreign policy may be all about championing human rights and democracy abroad. But if you look at the practice, um, that becomes the goal of US foreign policy for as long as doing that is not a posing any threats or resulting in any negative consequences for its strategic interests. So whenever I communicate with my Kurdish friends in DC, and we always talk about how to best lobby the US government to keep the Kurdish issue on the US State Department's agenda. Um, my opinion, suggestion has always been, if we approach the situation completely from a humanitarian, which is very important, don't get me wrong, but in order to get foreign policy establishments um, attention, the lobbying effort needs to focus on 
how this relationship is actually serving the interests and goals of both actors strategically in the long term. Lobbying efforts, as long as you focus on that, then you can gradually open more and more space for your humanitarian work as well. I wish I could tell you that you can just get, make this moral case about the humanitarian work and human rights-based work, but I highly doubt that that's not going to give us very quick solutions. Um, so that's why um, my suggestion is always the lobbying efforts needs to focus on the strategic part of the story. And then it's going to open up more space for our humanitarian work as well. So I can give you a few examples. What are these strategic issues maybe? Um, OK, let's look at Syrian context. Um, there's a Kurdish held area, Kurdish controlled area in Northern Syria since 2012, correct? Yeah. Um, the Rojava administration. Now, one of my questions while um, doing my research for this book at the State Department was, what is your Syria policy? You know, what do you want to achieve? Or what is... Um, what, what are your like goals in the context of Syria and the Middle East in general? Right. And the answer I got is first, counterterrorism. I mean, the ISIS conflict is cooling down, but we don't want the conflict just to cool down. We, always, we also want to establish strategies so that ISIS is not gonna come back because as long as you have these power vacuums, there's always a possibility they may come back stronger. And the rural ISIS insurgency is still going on, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's far from over. Um, we want a negotiated settlement to the Syrian conflict in a way that would benefit the US interests. And third, um, we want to curb the Iranian influence in the region. Now, if you look at especially Kurds in Iraq and Syria, you can easily see that they are directly relevant to all these three goals. You know? um, Northern Iraq and Northeast Syria is the main birthplace of ISIS. So if they're going to make a comeback, this is the area where they mainly recruit, where they mainly active. Um, that was the geographical area they established, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So first of all, the stability of northern Iraq and northeastern Syria, which is the Kurdish-held territories in these two countries, is very important in terms of U.S.'s counterterrorism strategy. And if we want a negotiated settlement in Syria, right now you're looking at an autonomous government of almost 10 years. It's not officially recognized by the opposition or Assad by the international community, but it is a reality. And reversing it to the previous status quo is very, very difficult in my opinion. So eventually one way or another, there is gonna be a negotiation process between Assad and the Kurds, which will possibly include Russia and Iran. Now, do we want Russia and Iran to broker that process or do we want the US to have a voice on it? And if we look at the situation in Syria, um, northeastern Syria, where the Kurds are active, is the only place where U.S. has some leverage to say something about Syria's future. So this area is important for counterterrorism. This area is preventing another major refugee crisis. This area can put pressure on Assad to negotiate. And this area is important for curbing Iranian influence, too. So 
this is a good thing to hold on to if you want to have a say in Syria's future. Why would you let something so good go? And if you let it go, it's only gonna benefit Russia and Iran in Syria and in the Middle East in general. So this is a good strategic position for the US to be. Let's look at Iraqi context, the same thing. Um, the central Iraqi government right now being Shia dominated is very much open to more to Iranian influence than the US influence. So again, in the Iraqi context too, where US has more leverage on the ground politically is KRG, not the central Iraqi government. So actually there's a lot of US interest in mediating these ongoing disputes between the two actors about Article 140, the disputed territories, the hydrocarbon laws, and the sharing of oil revenues. That kind of stability is how the US can actually still hold some leverage on the ground in Iraq as well, I think. How does that trickle down into like practical daily changes for, for people? Do you get what I'm saying? How does that affect the daily lives of of people who maybe are, you know, seeking to get more involved um, with civil society. Uh, um, if we want more civil society involvement, if we want more like humanitarian programs, if we want better education, I think these all can go into it. Um, yeah, the precondition for that is peace. Precondition for that is stability and no violence and no fighting and. You know, like historically, this geography is very, has always been very, very conflict ridden. And that has always been, I think, an obstacle to the type of programs, uh, implementation of the type of programs that you're talking about right now. Um, so a united posture in the KRG is a very important precondition for the type of is the implementation of the type of programs you're, you're talking about. And I think you kind of just touched on this a little bit, but um, one of the major, I guess, grievances I have with like the U.S. media and the way we approach the, uh, you know, Kurdish issue or, or and this whole story is that there isn't any kind of anchoring in, like you said, in the history. There, there's no every time you hear about um, the Kurds on the news or something, it's First of all, it's always focused militarily. Usually it's always focused on, on military actions and, and partnerships, but there's never this clarification for the American public on who are the Kurds, right? Um, and how do you, I mean, do, do you see that as a similar issue? And where do you think that conversation could be had? How, how could we like express this issue to the broader US public? How could we, not just issue, but how could we express the Kurdish culture and history um, to the broader public? I think by local organizing, um, there's like a little bit of um, Kurdish diaspora living in my city, Dallas. Um, I've been like in contact with them here and there, not super often, but we did get together a couple of times and, you know, like brainstormed about how uh, we can create more awareness about in our awareness in our local communities. So local organizing is one thing. Um, media is another thing. Um, lobbying efforts in DC um, is one. 
Um, so basically, if everybody is kind of active in their own neighborhood, I guess, um, then mm -hmm. we may be looking at a more impactful picture. Bottom up. Bottom yeah. up. Great. Um, well, thank you for joining me today, uh, Dr. Yuziltos. The book is Rethinking State Non-State Alliances, Change and Continuity in the U.S.-Kurdish Relationship by Azum Yuziltas. Thank you, Josh, for having me. That pleasure to have you. Thanks. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for joining us. Support Xi'an Foundation and this podcast by going to xi'an.org forward slash donate. J-I-Y-A-N dot O-R-G forward slash donate.